Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Breachside Broadcast, home of the finest foxcasting either side of the breach. Ladies and gentlemen, things are changing. A chapter in Malifaux's history is coming to a close. Loyalties are shifting, and new powers are ascendant. On tonight's episode, we have the beginning of a truly epic tale that will change Malifaux forever. I hope you enjoy part one of Shifting Loyalties, right after this word from our sponsor. This episode of the Breachside Broadcast is brought to you by the Honeypot Casino, where only the floors are crooked. Come on down to the Honeypot and try your luck at Roulette, Baccarat or Dead Man's Bluff. We offer the best odds this side of the Breach. Or test your aim and stomach in our private bullet room in back. Just tell them Jacob Lynch sent you. Shifting Loyalties by Matthew Farah. Thank you for the tea, monsieur. To be honest, Jacques had drunk almost none of it. It had a perfume taste that was probably considered complex or invigorating. Jacques didn't care for it, and had burnt his tongue on the first sip besides. Oh, don't mention it, said Jacob Lynch, whose long limbs were folded into the chair opposite. Pleasure to serve a guest with a less usual palate. Most everyone who comes in here goes straight for the spirits. That seemed to amuse him for some reason Jacques couldn't quite follow. You won't be offended if I, uh... He raised his eyebrows and held up a silver hip flask. Not at all, Mr. Lynch, please. Your very good health, then, Monsieur Pat Node, Lynch said, and took a pull on the flask. Jacques had one final sip of tea and put the cup down. They were sitting at a table on the sweeping mezzanine above the Honeypot Casino's main floor. Even on a Sunday night, it was busy. A hum of voices welled up from below them, threaded through with the rattle of roulette balls and the clink of glasses from the bar. Jacques wasn't particularly surprised. He did not frequent casinos, but even he knew the Honeypot's reputation as the house that never rested. But even so, the place was not quite what he expected. Malifaux was a strange melange of the modern with the inhumanly ancient. Wealth and desperation, high sophistication and slapdash frontier make-do. It was a mixture that the honeypot seemed to embody. The honeypot had set up in a grand old Malifaux building, a seven-story warren with an ornate stone façade that jutted into the terrace street. Surely it had once been a theatre or a meeting hall, or even a parliament, if whatever had first built the city had those. But the fittings overlaying the house's soaring, if slightly funereal grandeur, were jarringly cheap and crude. Threadbare furnishings, rugs worn almost to rags, bars and shelves that were little more than bare planking. 
Only the gaming tables themselves showed any sign of expense. And then mixed in with that came odd dashes of gentility. Behind the bar, the occasional fine brandy or whiskey nestled in with the cheap bathtub grog, and the ugly paintings around the walls were punctuated by elegant calligraphy or silk hangings. The armchair Jacques sat in was sagging, stained and frankly musty-smelling, but the octagonal table on which his cup rested was laid out in a beautiful geometry of red and black lacquer. The Three Kingdoms' touches to the place were obvious. That was reassuring. It suggested that Jacques was on the right track with the business he had here tonight. You'll be angry, won't he? Lynch said. Jacques jumped. I beg your pardon, sir? Lucius, the good secretary. He was very emphatic that I arrange a private space for his visit, wasn't he? Monsieur Patnode. Jacques swallowed. He had read everything he could on Lynch and the manor's exhaustive files, but it only now occurred to him to wonder how much Lynch knew about him. Lynch shook his head and laughed. You can't relax, you know. I know perfectly well that letter wasn't from Madison. You do his handwriting well, but not well enough. And trust me, Lucius wouldn't have asked me to kindly do anything. He would just have told me what was happening. Additionally, he glanced down at his watch, it's one minute past. Would he ever be a whole minute late? He would not, Monsieur Lynch, and so you see through me. I had to ensure I would be admitted here and could speak with you directly. Ah, Lynch laughed again. He had an engaging laugh, bright and unselfconscious. Jacques was surprised to feel himself relaxing. I have had many folk at my door insisting on speaking to me directly for all sorts of reasons, but none have ever gone about it quite the way you have. Lynch was still smiling, but now in his eyes Jacques could see the chilly calculation of the professional gambler. I need your help, Jacques said. The help of your business, your uh, associates in enterprise. You'd like to employ the honeypot for an occasion, is that it? Well, we don't ordinarily. Please, Mr. Lynch. If you wish to set your games aside, then let us do that. I need the help of your true employer. That's not actually as specific a request as you might think, Lynch said, and his smile grew oddly opaque for a moment. Then he grinned and swung a gangling arm to clap Jacques on the back. But I'm being unkind. I did sort of guess what you might be wanting. We're ready for you. Would you like to bring your tea with you? No? Gone cold? Shame. Well, off we go. Things are not quite their usual tempo, are they? Lynch said over his shoulder, as he led Jacques through a bewildering crisscross of passageways, twisting stairs and doors. Martial law, curfews, talk of rationing indeed. He spun around and looked Jacques earnestly in the eye. You'd know this, Jacques. Is all this talk true of a script levy to fund a pumping station affixed to city's water supply? Because... And then he laughed that charming laugh again. Listen to me. Talk in civic politics. People will say I've become respectable. It'll be the ruin of me. He started walking again. Now in my heyday, I'd already be on the train up the frostering line to one of these instant boom towns on the river. Deck of cards in my pocket, ready to make my fortune off these new minute water tycoons the importation racket has raised up. 
Well, someone's fortune, anyway. They passed into a little arched chamber, ringed by stairs and doorways, and Lynch picked an exit apparently at random. But we get older, Jacques, he said as they arrived at a door that looked exactly like every other one they'd walked past in the last ten minutes. Things happen, don't they? Obligations, commitments, debts. They just seem to appear like barnacles. And one day you find you're just not your own master anymore. Monsieur, Jacques said, you have the advantage of me in many ways tonight, but I believe I could educate you about finding yourself in the employ of an unholy master. Jacques was surprised to realize he'd crossed himself as he spoke, but the change in Lynch was more startling still. For a moment, all the cheery animation left him, leaving Jacques staring into a haggard death mask and hollow, despairing eyes. You know... Lynch said hoarsely. I'm almost tempted to ask you to put a wager on that. And then the smile was back on his face, and he was opening the door. She was dressed in lustrous yellow silk, and pearls gleamed in her hair. Before her, on the low table she knelt at, sat a pitcher of sake and three cups. By her side on the floor rested a basento polearm, its heavy cleaving blade demurely shrouded in cloth. In Lady Masaki's hands was the forged Madison letter. Jacques did not count himself a brilliant mind, but he thought he understood the message. A convivial drink if we like what you bring us, the blade if we do not. You are a man of position, Monsieur Patnaud, she said. Her enunciation was flawless, both English and French. You may not have formal power, but you certainly have influence and respect. And safety, too, working under the wing of one of the most dangerous men in Malifaux. A blessing not to be dismissed in these times. And yet you risk a hanging by venturing here tonight. I risk the hanging the instant my pen touched that paper, madame. And if it is ever discovered, the risk will become certainty. For as long as you hold that letter in your hands, you hold my life also. Masaki didn't respond to that, nor did Lynch, who was sitting awkwardly cross-legged halfway up the table. Nevertheless, Jacques got the impression that it had been the right thing to say. So may I speculate, madame, he went on, that since your response to my visit was to come to these premises in person to meet me, that you are equally serious about hearing me. Masaki and Lynch shared a look, and it was Lynch who spoke. Well, he said, that depends. What is it you'd like us to smuggle for you? He looked from Jacques' shocked face to Masaki's tiny frown of disapproval and laughed. Oh, come on. I know when it's time to just put our cards down. We know you're out on the breachside line, pretending to monitor a guild dispatch, but fussing about in all sorts of places you had no business. You were trying to find loopholes in the new transit controls, weren't you? We don't think you'll manage that without tipping your hand to your boss. Even traveling as far as the breach itself now requires a signed warrant of passage. As a forger, you're not completely hopeless, Jacques but you're not good enough to produce one of those. And we know he paid court to Colette Dubois, too. Nice touch, 
taking the flowers to the stage door to pretend you were an admirer, by the way. But it looks like she was no help. Colette has no equal within the city, but to get anything Earthside, she has to use the same trains as everyone else, and the new controls are cramping her style. And finding that out made you desperate enough to forge that letter and come to me. To us, he corrected, nodding to the end of the table. Because you do not rely on traffic through the breach, said Jacques, since you possess your own. And their reactions were a joy. Lynch rocked back as if he'd been shoved. Misaki's posture did not change, but she put a sleeve-shouted hand across her mouth to hide her expression. Above it, her eyes blazed. You did say it was time to put our guards down, Monsieur Lynch. I did. I just didn't realize you were going to slap down a joker. I'm trying to decide what color it is. Secretary Madison is a very informed man. I do not handle all his papers nor convey all his messages, but I see enough of them to suggest certain conclusions. And besides, what the hell, he could allow himself a little flourish. Traffic through the breach has been limited to guild-sanctioned essentials for weeks now. And yet the tea you served me on my arrival was fresh. Do you have a plantation here in Malifaux? I submit that you do not. Lynch was laughing again, head thrown back. Masaki lowered her hand. What is it you wish us to bring to you? she asked. I do not wish to arrange transportation into Malifaux, madame, but in the other direction. Through to Earthside. Does that change matters? Not in any substantial way she answered. However, our road to the kingdom is precious to us, and we are most careful what we entrust to it. She stopped, and there was silence for a moment. She wants to know what you're smuggling out, Lynch put in when it became obvious Jacques had missed his cue. You know those dashing smugglers in the penny magazines with their codes of honor about never asking questions? Well, they can do that because they're in a storybook. We need to know. So, soul stones, bayou narcotics, relics, old Malifaux texts, specimens, blueprints. The contraband, madame and monsieur, is myself. If Jacques had been not so well bred, he would have slumped with relief. There. It was out. Yourself. Masaki sounded like she didn't believe him. You'll risk all this to escape your enviable position and flee from Malifaux. Yes, madame, and escape. That is what I desire. Escape from this elish place, before the governor-general finishes his tour of the towns and returns to Malifaux City. I beg you to assist me, and whatever I have in my power to pay or to arrange, I shall do it for you in return. Why, Jacques? Lynch broke in. I see plenty of poor bastards I wouldn't blame for wanting out, for plenty of reasons. The guild strangling the city, and every disaster, the earthquake, the fires under the ground, the filth in the water, the riots, is an excuse to tighten their grip. The Union and the Thunders are almost at war. Come on, milady, it's no secret, not from him. And the Neverborn never stopped being at war with all of us. The event when the comet fell set things in motion we can all feel. All right, some more than others, perhaps, he added, seeing the puzzlement on Jacques' face. But, but in you, Misaki said, we see a scholar and a courtier placed within the fold of highest authority. You put yourself in danger from that very authority 
which could go so far to keep you safe no matter the tribulations of the rest of the city. And so we wonder, Monsieur Patinode, what threat do you see in the highest halls of the guild that makes you feel more in danger there than here? Me. May I have some of that sake, madame? Jacques managed to take the cup without his hand shaking and downed it in a gulp. So, come on, Jacques, Lynch said. Anything in your power, right? So here it is. You must know what's happening in the manor. What is it, Jacques? What's he doing? And he told them. Once again, there was that glorious moment when it changed. The municipal seal went to the mayor, of course, and because the mayor had been voted in, the influence reached through him and gently drew in every adult in the town. It didn't even matter if the vote had been crooked. And how many of these towns were free of crooks? The symbolism was there. And it was the symbols that created the binding. The court seal went to the town's magistrate, dressed in his wig and gown, eyes twinkling behind his mask. More and more of the town magistrates were adding masks to their regalia now, as Lucius seated even the tiniest district courts with his personal protégés. And finally the guild seal, to the comptroller. The most important official, appointed directly from the manor to make sure the elected rabble didn't get ideas above their station. There were still a handful of towns that didn't have them, where the older men thought they ran things. He wondered why he had ever allowed that. Sloppy. Never mind. Soon he would have everything in order. As each official took the seal and bowed to him, he could feel the work strengthening, building. It was like the first luxurious stretch after a long sleep, and like the exhilarating strain as he shouldered heavier and heavier weights in the manor's exercise hall, and like the pressure-popping feeling of ascending a cable car spire in an electric lift that was moving too swiftly. Ascending. He liked that word. The sensation was no less thrilling for being familiar. Nothing he had done since had equaled the scale of what he'd accomplished the night of the masked ball. But All Hallows' Eve was months in the past now, and every new work brought its own unique satisfaction. Every addition expanded his control, intensified the power radiating through the invisible architecture he was building. He held up the municipal plaque, a heavy tablet of brass engraved with the town's number, the name he'd allowed it to take, a simple emblem that it could boast about and call its own. For this place it was a fist and a bell, although he couldn't remember why. It didn't matter. He let the red velvet wrapping slide off the plaque and flutter to the floor. The spell was already tightening about them, and even the last little bit of fidgeting and fussing had died away. The whole hall sat statue still, their eyes fixed on the plaque as he held it up. To the folk of Abdebnego, he boomed, loyal men and women of the guild, citizens of Malifaux, long and fruitful be your labors, and long may your town prosper for them. Huzzah! And that was all it took. He felt his will make the push like a physical muscle, 
The plaque shuddered in his hand, the linchpin of the work, and a moment later everyone in the packed hall was on their feet applauding. The Governor-General smiled. A purple-blue spark flared in his left eye for a moment, and then a similarly colored glow came through the skin of his right temple, as though another spark had ignited beneath his skin. Nobody in the crowd betrayed any reaction to it at all. He noticed that some of them were clapping their hands in synchronization, oblivious to what they were doing. He smiled again. Order. Order from chaos. It would work. He would make it work. Behind him, an attendant hurried forward to pick up the gold-fringed velvet cloth the plaque had been wrapped in. It would be needed to wrap the next plaque when they moved on in the morning. There were four more towns to do before this leg of the Weistregal tour was over. Perdita knelt in the middle of the Badlands Trail beneath the downblast of great wings. Her eyes were closed, her face solemn but calm. The wingbeats pushed her hat from her head, and she put out a hand to catch it. Dust swirled around her as the great white beast climbed higher, dwindling into the sky. Perdita didn't move until the breeze from her steed's wings was gone, and its screams were too faint to hear. Once she was alone, Perdita stood replaced her hat on her head and started walking. The depthless indigo film that had filled her eyes while she rode her never-born beast gradually melted away. After a score of steps, they were once again the color she'd been born with, the intense black that came to only a few Ortegas in a generation. She'll be a fiery one this, the midwife had said. See in her eyes, they're already cinders. Francisco had told her that story. She could remember him trying to imitate the woman's voice, and both of them laughing in how he sounded. That was a good memory. A warm one to hold on to after all of the madness. The plummeting red star. The long darkness of her coma. The being that had come up out of the earth to attend upon her. She tilted her hat back and craned her head to look into the sky. But her steed had flown too high to be seen now and the desperate battle for Sonia Crid's life in the hellish conflagration beneath the city. She did not sigh or smile, but turned the memory over in her mind as she walked. The only sound she could hear was the crunch of her boots on the dry trail dirt. The revelations. And oh how she'd fought against using that word for so long, just calling them dreams, fancies. Trying to deny the power of the change in herself. The revelations were getting harder to hold in her mind, some came slamming into her with an almost physical shock. Some flowed in silently like a river. But if this endless new knowledge was a river, then she was more and more certain that she would soon drown in it. She would look at a person and remember everything about them as though they were an old friend, but then realize that she'd set eyes on them for the first time a moment before, and simply known all about them with that one glance. A ride into the forest of the bayou could bury her in strange memories, and unnerving certainties about what was around her. When she'd led the way into the flames to confront Cherufe and save Sonia, she'd been unable to distinguish between what she knew was happening, what she thought might happen, and what she was planning to do, what she knew she would do. So little could be counted on anymore. 
Adita had been unconscious for the bright blast that had swept across Malifaux, but its after-effects were horribly apparent to her. The scars had been left across the city, across the land, and on her companions. Sonia Crid had been burned into a rail-thin, steel-masked ghost of her old self. Lady Justice, always aloof, seemed to have drifted even further from the society of anyone but her own death marshals. Hoffman, the little engineer, avoided her when she was in the guild compound, but still she knew. He had had a visitation of his own, a great beast like hers, but of bright metal that rewrought itself around him. She knew these things. She just didn't know what they meant. Perhaps, she thought with a bark of laughter, fate had made a mistake. She didn't bury herself in books for fun, didn't sit among clouds of great words like the smoke from some fat cigar. She dealt with the problem she could see, not one she pulled off a page. What if she and Sonia had been given one another's curses? Crid would have loved the revelations. She could have taken them into her library and, well, do whatever one did with piles of old books. And she, Perdita, could have used the flames. Oh, yes, she knew just how she would use those. She stopped walking and peered ahead. The dust cloud she'd seen from high in the air was closer now. She could make out the mounted outriders and marching guards. And in their midst, there was a great savage glitter of sunlight on steel. The Governor-General's land ironclad was even bigger than the enormous locomotive that pulled the train back and forth through the breach. A great rolling fort, whose battlements were steel plate instead of stone, grinding across the hard pan on metal treads broad as railway sleepers. A curved brass plaque on the prow bore the thing's name, Majestic, in bold imperial capitals. The guild flag and the Governor-General's personal pennant flew over its peaked roof. Perdita could see no smokestacks. The thing must be running on soul stones. She wondered how much of the guild's wealth had been sunk into this creation. She did not know that, but she knew this. He was in there. The cavalcade was soon close enough for her to make out the faces of the guard troopers marching around it, heavy boots scuffing up a grey-brown haze. They were big sons of bitches, probably chosen for it, rifles over their shoulders, faces shaded under broad hats and masked against the dust and glare with bandanas and goggles. Out beyond them she could see the outriders, guild cavalry in variant uniforms she hadn't seen before sweeping out to the sides to box her in. Perdita jutted her chin, lit that flashing Ortega fire in her dark eyes. She flicked her coat back, cocked her hip with her hand on her peacebringer, and waited for them to come and get her. The fan hanging from the office's ceiling cooled the room a little, but the Governor-General had still made a concession to the warmth of the afternoon. His uniform jacket was off, hanging on a brass frame by the door. His high-crowned hat perched atop it, making the whole affair the highest-ranking scarecrow in Malifaux. The coattails stirred in the breeze from the fan. He sat at his desk, his back to the French doors that opened onto the Majestic's observation deck. Their stained glass made a mosaic of his crisp white shirt sleeves. From out on the deck came a burst of shouting, and the doors rattled as someone tested the catch. The Governor-General's expression didn't change. 
He signed the last of the papers in front of him, rolled a blotter over it, capped his steel-nib pen, and placed it in the little carved rack on his desk just as the doors crashed open. A gust of warm air pushed through the room, carrying the odd, bitter scent of the Badlands dust, and after it came Perdita Ortega, tossing her hat onto his desk and dropping into the office's other chair. Her glossy black hair was so long she had to twitch it aside with her hands so that she wouldn't sit on it. His sentries came hurrying in after her, not quite game to actually grab her. The woman with the sharpshooter's lanyard had left her rifle slung, but hadn't quite dared to draw her baton. The man with the braided beard had one hand out like a pugilist, and the other touching the engraved steel Thalarian collar about his neck. White vapor drifted out from behind his smoked glass goggles. For a long few breaths, the four of them made a tableau in the bright afternoon light, and then Perdita put her boot up on the edge of the desk with a clunk that made both guards start. Are you going to have your two Munakitas throw me out, boss? she asked. I didn't bring my badge or any fancy papers, but I thought maybe you could tell them who I am. By way of reply, the Governor General snapped his fingers and tilted his head, and both guards jerked into motion as though he'd applied a spark to their hides. A moment later, they closed the door behind them, and the Viceroy was alone with his monster hunter. You're getting dust on my desk, Ortega, he rumbled glaring at the little scatter of Badlands earth across the mahogany and red leather. Perdita tilted her boot this way and that, dislodging a little more, then dropped her foot again. The rug was thick enough that her boot barely made a thud. Dust gets into everything out in the Badlands, boss, she said. I could have warned you about that if you told me you were setting out my way. But I didn't get word, boss. Didn't get no warning. It's dangerous out on the fringes. When trouble come at you here, it come hard. You should have sent word to Latigo, mi jefe. I promised you you'd have been safer with me and my posse than with all... She waved a hand about her. You don't like my cavalcade, the viceroy said. Too bad. I'm rather pleased with it. We've made excellent time around the dry-washed towns and the bayou borders. We'll pass back through Edge Point and into the city in time to strike out for Ridley by month's end. I'm making history, Ortega. And history won't wait for us. Perdita spent a few moments digesting what that might mean. The Governor-General didn't move, even when her fingertips stroked the intricate leatherwork around her holster. I'm not used to asking anything to wait for me, she said eventually. Ever. If I need something to stop for me, I just make it. I won't beg. And if it still won't stop, I'll just... She shrugged. Climb aboard the Governor-General said, arching an eyebrow. We didn't stop for you to embark. I'd have felt it. Did you really walk up front of my ironclad and just clamber up it? Pabita just twitched her eyebrow in response, and he couldn't help but laugh. No wonder my guards were so flustered. Knowing you by reputation didn't prepare them for the real thing. You should tell them to pay more attention to the stories. Oh, I'm sure they've heard plenty of those. There were stories about you by the time you'd been here a week. The little girl who turned her nose up at an armory shotgun and went hunting Nephilim with a pistol instead. I remember that. Never even got the shotgun. I was last in line. Quartermaster told me he'd run out. Cheap things anyway, though. Of course they were. I could barely arm my regulars properly. I certainly couldn't afford anything fancy for the double bucks. He snorted at Padita's look of surprise. 
You didn't know that? I paid for the first two irregular cohorts out of my own pocket. He sat back in his chair. Our official treasury was empty, and the soulstone mines were still just a dream. A golden fleece somewhere out there. I was a lieutenant general, but my rank only applied this side of the breach. Commandant of the Malifaux Resettlement Corps. I couldn't just requisition a larger force. I pushed my authority to the limit just getting Vienna to sign off on replacing our casualties. The Governor General's gaze had wandered away from Padita as he weighed the old memories. Our headquarters was just two houses we barricaded together. We'd only just started to take the fight out into the city. House by house, room by room, cobble by bloody cobble it seemed like sometimes. We were going through guarded recruits so fast we couldn't even clothe them properly. I saw a man stand posts in second-hand uniforms with bloodstains around the patching where the last owner had taken his death wound. And all the while the breach flickering in the distance. Bright, dim, bright. It was less stable then. I think every one of us was sure at least once that it was going to go out again, and that we'd make our last stand in those grubby little rooms. My officers hated the idea of sharing the barricades with a rabble of civilian fortune seekers. Ha! <laughs> I did too. But I did what was necessary. I remember the night I decided. I'd seen three men die out on the Sanitas Square barricades between sunset and moonrise before we beat the creatures back. I unloaded my gun, gave all the rounds I had left to the men, and I went back to those squalid little houses, and I wrote and signed the order. So if you pay for us yourself, what was the surety for? Why'd I hand over two dollars to get on the train? Perdita was getting drawn in despite herself. It felt good to speak and listen instead of simply knowing. I wanted desperate people, the Governor General said, enjoying the reminiscence just as much. People who thought Malifaux were better future than whatever Earthside had for them. But I didn't want every town in the land just emptying its poorhouses through the breach either. Setting a two-dollar surety for enlistment in the Irregulars turned out to be just the right threshold. He grinned. And a guarantee that nobody ever referred to the Irregular Auxiliary again. I've no idea who christened them the Double Bucks, but it caught on. Because of the surety and the weapon. Double-barreled shotgun and a pouch of buckshot shells. Clever. Malifaux seems to bring it out in people. Things have meanings. Things... Words, symbols, have weight. His eyes grew hooded. They told us it was what our lives were worth, Perdita said sourly. We all believed it, too. The stories that were going around Earthside on what it was like. She shook her head. I believe the stories about the monsters and the devils and the dead men. But I guess I believe the stories about the streets paved in gold and soulstones, too. Because I got on a train, didn't I? What were you, Padita? I don't remember. First intake? Not the first. They were making fun of us at Breachtown, the train marshals. Said we weren't the first, we wouldn't be the last, but we might be the stupidest. She caught herself and closed her mouth. No, the Governor General said, spotting it. Go on. One of them told me I sure was the stupidest. And I sure weren't the prettiest, but I do. Told me to get into the station office with him instead of on the train. Her mouth twisted. 
wasn't much of a man, but I guess he thought taking it out on a little girl would make him more of one. Her grimace became a smile. Well, the piece he tried to pistol-whip me with after I need him, but before I hit him with the lamp? That's the gun I was wearing when you pinned that badge on me. Huh. You never told me that story before. I suppose you're going to say that you carry it with you to this day. Benita gave a loose wave of her hand. Nah. Hiffenen, thirty-two, five shot. Piece of junk. But it worked long enough for me to bag two Nephilim on the barricade the first night after I got the badge. I got, well, something anyway, out along the river two nights later. Still don't know what it was. Except it ate two flatboat crew, but good enough for a bounty. After a week I have enough script for a collier and exactly one load of ammo. After a week you had a reputation. Everyone was talking about the little double-buck pistol Lyra. There you go, Padita said. People should listen to the stories. You are such a skinny little brat, the Governor General said happily. That was what everyone said to those stories at first. What, they would say, that skinny little brat? How could she have done those things? But a girl who could make it to Malifaux all by herself. Your family came later, didn't they? I didn't deputize them. It must have been Lucius. Wasn't that puta serpiente? Perdita growled. He hadn't arrived yet. Was some man Gideon? Ah, the good Captain Gideon, the Governor General smiled. Of course. He studied Perdita again. And they let you come through alone. Hmm. Didn't let me. Didn't know. I was young, but I knew the trouble we were in. No money in the whole country going crazy with the breach open again. It was hard for us. I remember lying awake and listening to them in the next room. She was mildly surprised she was revealing so much, let alone to this man. But it felt good to let the words flow. They talked most of the way through to dawn, argued about it. We could only afford for one to go through, maybe do okay, send some money back, help the family out. Francisco was all duty, said he would be ashamed as the eldest son for anyone else to go. Santiago kept shouting that he was the strongest. We must send the strongest. Papa told him the day he failed to lead his family from the front was the day we would put him in the grave. Hours and hours of this. They tied each other out, but he just smiled at the memory. And when they were all asleep without agreeing, I snuck out and stole the two dollars, got dressed outside the front door so I wouldn't wake him. I walked the rest of the night, and I was at the Breachtown station at dawn. I should have known, the Governor General chuckled. Nobody spoke to me on the train, Perdita said. I think they thought if they talked to me, they'd feel responsible. Best just leave the little girl in the corner and pretend someone else will look after her, she shrugged. But they didn't talk to each other either, so maybe it wasn't me. How many of your double-buck cohort do you suppose are still alive? We don't exactly circulate a newsletter, boss she said, shaking her head free of the memories. I didn't know most of their names, she shrugged. But word comes around sometimes. Picolas, the old Greek. I hear tell he's a big man up on the mountain lines now. Optimal Murphy's still around. A schoolteacher up at Ridley, if you can believe it. Got himself a fancy gearwork arm after something in the forest made off with his old one. 
I hear he still take your script and pins on a badge on occasion. He was the one told me Zephyr Gray is dead, with the family she started. She was a good woman. The old days really are dying, Perdita, the Governor General said softly. And it was that very softness, something she'd never heard from him before, that silenced her. The distant grinding of the tread sat between them in the air for a moment. And that's what this is, then, Perdita said. The old days are dying. Your study's moving on, and it's not waiting for us. She was conscious of the muscles in her neck and shoulder, the way she was when she was preparing to draw. For us. You. You're riding up inside history. That it? Look around you, he said. Look at the machine you're sitting in. Think about what you must have seen as you climbed up it. That is the future of Guild Rule. The cavalry squadrons, the rifle corps, the hunter and warden constructs, the sanctioned spellcasters. The what? Perita sat up straight from her slouch, her studied insolence forgotten. You're deputizing Bruja now? She shot a look back over her shoulder. That was what that bastard in the collar was, wasn't it, boss? I don't want to be anywhere near your office when Sonia finds out. The Governor General's fist slammed down on the desk. You still don't understand, do you, Ortega? With a visible effort, he reined his voice in. We are both old Malifaux hands. We have fought both in and for this place longer than most. In consideration of that, I have treated you better than you deserved after you came clambering up my engine like some common bandit. I shall make one more attempt to help you understand. Not a blaze, but a deep smolder that looked harmless. The way a spark looks harmless until it reaches the end of its fuse and touches off the dynamite. Frontiers, he told her, do not stay frontiers. Wild lands are tamed. Through toil and leadership and bloodshed, wildernesses are built into nations. And yes, Perdita, frontiers are a place for heroes. Legends. People who not only fight and toil, but inspire. You have been all that and more. So has Crid. So has Lady Justice. The Viceroy laced his fingers in front of him, and Perdita noticed they were discolored, as if he dunked them in purple-blue ink. The mottling on them seemed to be moving. A wild frontier gives heroes plenty of room to simply do as they wish, he went on. You went and hunted your bounty so desperate to earn your scrip and show your family you weren't some poor dependent mouth to feed. Perdita's expression stiffened at that, as though he'd physically slapped her. Crid became obsessed with hunting rogue magicians, but Crit is obsessed with everything about magic, her own command of it most of all. Justice. She's as inscrutable as a stone goddess, that one. But no one doubts her calling. The opalescent color on his fingers was intensifying, and the fingernails were glowing a faint electric blue. Ignorant of the change or indifferent to it, the Governor General talked on. You were magnificent figures. Herculean. You rallied people around you around your legends. And I would take any tool I had at hand to conquer this place, no matter the weight of it, or how it blistered my hands. So I put badges on you and your family and let you build your fortress in the hills where you could slam your gates on my officials. Same as I put a badge aside for Crid while she chased witches up street and down lane and commandeer rooms for her libraries in that damnable yellow crypt. I put a badge on Lady Justice, 
and I watched while that whole freakish troop of death marshals sprang up under her command. I let you all draw on my resources, give orders to my guards, laugh in the faces of my proxies when they asked for an accounting, because there was a time when Malifaux needed you, and I have always done what is needed. And now you're all grown up, Perita said, and the heroes get put to pasture. Are you surprised? he asked her. Did you ever hear the stories of the great days of the Spanish main? It's dashing private ears and wicked pirates, cannon and cutlass, buried treasure. He didn't wait for an answer. All gone now. The great buccaneers are long since hanged or drowned. The main is plied by comfortable steamships, unreliable timetables, owned by banks and syndicates. The Wild West, sheriffs and outlaws, gunfighters dueling in the street at high noon, he sat back and waved a hand. It left a faint purple trail in the air after it. Was any of that left by the time you grew up? The prairies are bound by railroads and telegraph lines now. The towns have paved streets and electric lights. And those great names the children like to pretend to be? He let the point hang. You don't believe what you're telling me, Perdita said. You can't. You think that's Malifaux now? You think the place is ready for, for banks and timetables and history books? You think all you need now is some wet-eared little recruits who keep their brass buttons polished? You think your past needing creed or justice or me? She leaned forward, fists resting on the desk. Well, let me tell you what I know. I know we are less than a day's ride from Ash Circle Spur. Know why they call it that? Cause my brother and his pistoleros found nine wagons smashed and burned there. Armored wagons, well supplied. Seven families made their stand in that circle, and the Neverborn piled their chewed bones six feet high. Santiago gave them a barrier. Within three days the Neverborn had been back, dug up the bones, smashed them and scattered them all across the hillside. Just so we'd know how much they hate us. I know if you turn northeast from here, you'll hit Cave Creek, where the Badlands end. Little train of settlers thought they'd set up there. Couple of farmers, couple of cattlemen, a brewer. Was one of the farmers and his little daughter came knocking on the gates of Latigo six weeks ago, too broken to talk for days. But eventually, they told what happened. What they had found growing up amongst their crops, and what their animals turned into. The daughter drew pictures instead of talking. Maybe I'll show them to you. I know you've come from Abednego. I also know that mi abuela had to send my brother and my cousin and a half dozen pistoleros out to Abednego not one month gone because they'd seen Nephilim circling in the sky at sunset and things we still got no name for had come sniffing about in the night. They got there just hours before the attack. Nino went up on the town hall roof with his rifle and more than a hundred rounds and he came home with no ammo in his satchel. They left two pistoleros there in the ground, a brave brother and sister, and another three from the town. They tell you about that, boss? Write you a nice report for Lucius to keep in a fire. Show you the new graves when you had your parade. And you're the only one who can stand in the way, the Governor General said. His voice was still soft, but it had lost his gentleness. Your little handful of heroes are the only ones who can save the day. A faint mist of sky-blue light wafted out of his right eye. I keep forgetting how young you are. 
I think your head is full of too many stories to understand what's happening here. I think I've been through too many battles to not understand. Did you even think of talking to me before you came out here? Did you think of talking to any of us about this? This history you think you're making? Do you understand the danger? The glow in the Viceroy's hands flared and faded, and the curling lights around his right temple suddenly stuck back into his eye and vanished. He smiled. I understand control. You don't control shit, Perdita shouted, coming up out of the chair. There are monsters in the Badlands, and more in the high forests. There's a living snowstorm that's starving your mining towns in the mountains. There's whole tribes of gremlins breeding in the bio that's smarter than any we've seen. You don't even control your own goddamn city. More than half of it's still barricaded because you still don't have the strength to retake it. What about the tunnels? Your city's on what's almost a whole second city down there. What's in those places? Poison. Monsters. Plagues like no one's ever seen. Never born. Ghosts that skin your people, eat their flesh. Dead who won't stay dead. And what's worse, monstruos humanos who make more of them. That's your control, boss. That's the malafo you ignore while you sit on your ass in a velvet chair in your manor and let Lucia show you pretty papers and tell you how in control you are. You're welcome to stay with the cavalcade until we're back in the city, Ortega. And then perhaps you'll understand what I mean. Please, I've seen... What have you seen, then? The Governor-General roared, suddenly surging to his feet and over his desk until they were nose-to-nose, eyes locked. If it's you I should be asking for reports, then report. Tell me why you and your family disappeared from Latigo on some damn goose chasing of the bayou. Why, yes, Lucy just did show me a pretty paper that told me that our guards, our brave brothers and sisters that you are so concerned about, were stretched to their limits, keeping the Neverborn from the fringe towns, while you decided to hear off looking for a statue. How very heroic of you to go off on an archaeological trip instead of fighting the battles I personally deputized you for. You don't, don't what? Don't know, don't understand, don't realize what you went through when that red comet fell. If you think this threat is so terrible, then perhaps you can explain to me why some of my most potent and trusted agents see fit to treat this crisis as their own private adventure. You don't want to be pushed to one side, Ortega. Tough. You put yourself there. You all want so badly to be free agents with your own agendas. Don't complain when you don't get treated like trusted insiders anymore. Insiders? Fedita asked. It took an effort to keep her voice steady. Inside what? You trust your new Pred Bruja? How do you know how many of them are Arcanists or worse? You trust Lucius? What's he telling you, boss? What's he doing to you? You think I can't see how you're changing? I know what hangs in the balance here, he growled back at her. Their faces were still only inches apart. Humanity's whole venture in a Malifaux has risked far more than anyone Earthside understands. There can be no mistakes. This crisis does not need leadership. It needs rulership. Slowly he straightened and pulled back from her, lowered himself back into his chair. I am doing what is necessary, he said, as I have always done. I am becoming what is necessary. He gave a smile. 
a narrow, sly smile that did not belong on his blunt, craggy features. As for what you are becoming, Miss Ortega, perhaps you should think on that, and on what path you are on. Have a think about danger and control and trust, while you ride home on that creature that flew to you out of the earth. He knows, she thought to herself, and then the next door chilled her to the marrow. And I don't. I can't tell what is in him. Can't read him. When I walked into this room, the revelations dried up, like their shadows, and he is a fire. Becoming? What is he becoming? He watched her expression change. How could you think I wouldn't know? I know you ride the skies on your never-born pet. I know Crid's obsession with her magic has filled her up with something she can't control. And I know what the thing is. I know that justice teaches her marshals about the magic of death and what those teachings are doing to them. I've seen what Hoffman amalgamates into when the power surges up in him. You're all turning into vessels for the very things I appointed you to battle against. He held up a cupped hand, then closed his grip. Air and light seemed to bend and deform around his fingers, as though the room about them were a painted canvas that he was crushing in his hand. Because I let you slip. I could not keep you controlled. Perhaps it's too late for that, but I will do better with your successes. My work is too important to fail. Perita straightened up in silence and stepped back from the desk. My father may be crazy, she said, but I know he was a good and wise man. It took this place to make him crazy. You. You're doing it to yourself. They looked at each other for a few moments. There was a tiny squeak from above them as the fan turned. There didn't seem to be much else to say, and so Perita turned on her heel and left him there, staring after her with his unnatural, lambent eyes. for another episode of the Breachside Broadcast. Join us next time for part two of Shifting Loyalties.